0: The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfil every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in us, we pray, and teach us what it means to be glorified in him, to look forward to that hope of glory, and to live now in such a way that we will inherit it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I Invite you to sit and let me add my welcome, especially to those of you who are not normally among us here at All Saints. It is a distinct pleasure for us to welcome so many visitors. It's just wonderful to see unfamiliar faces here and uh, we hope you have a great time. We hope you're planning to stay for lunch. If you're not, please do. We have far too much food to eat. I don't know what we're going to do if we don't have your help to consume it. So please do stick around. Easter Day is a gloriously intrusive festival. You have those 40 long days of Lent, the deepening solemnity, climaxing in the darkness of Good Friday, and then Easter Day just kind of bursts onto our consciousness, doesn't it? It overwhelms everything else with its unapologetic declaration that the darkness is over, that the light has come, that death is dead, that Christ is risen. And everyone wants to say, he's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. Because we're all liturgical creatures, aren't we? And we notice the cadences of life and history. It's an interesting contrast with Christmas. Advent is a gradually increasing and more bright and glorious anticipation of the glory that comes into the world, the candles increase in number, you have this build-up towards the climax. In Lent, it's actually more like what our lives are sometimes like, when the darkness deepens, and deepens, and deepens, and just when all hope is gone, or just about, you discover you're actually at Good Friday, and the darkest night is just before the dawn. You see how Easter Day intruded into the lives of the early disciples? We had that reading from Matthew 28, didn't we? There they were, discouraged, dispirited, on the verge of despair, fearing what lay ahead. You ever felt like that? And just when all hope seems gone, the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, he's not here for he is risen. Come look at the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples because I've got some, got some news for him. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings and they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him and they can hardly have expected anything like that to upturn their world, to intrude into their consciousness. And my intention today, if you don't mind, is to intrude into yours. My intention today, by God's grace, is to recognise that every single one of you comes here with many different concerns. You're worried about many things. You're conscious of what's been going on this week, or what you discovered yesterday, or what you feared for some time and now realise is true, or In all the different circumstances of life, in relationships that you think just couldn't get any worse and then they do, or a job that you think couldn't get any more dismal than it does, or a life which is ebbing perhaps towards its close, and all those concerns you bring with you today, and I have every intention, it's like Jesus with Martha, isn't it? You're worried and concerned about many things, but one thing is needful. My intention, by God's grace, is to reorient all of us to those concerns of our daily life by showing you the one thing that's needful, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It seems to me that this is in keeping with Paul's aim in writing to his dear friends in Thessalonica. You remember the situation? This is a faithful church, a church for which he thanks God. You saw that back in verse 3 a couple of weeks ago. We give thanks to you because your faith... That is, your faithfulness is growing abundantly, but they're facing persecution, you remember? And Paul's concerned that they're in danger of losing hope. You notice the parallel in 1 Thessalonians when he writes his first letter to them. He thanks God for their faith and their love and their steadfastness in hope, and then in the second letter it's faith, love, steadfastness in, and the hope is gone. Persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring, and he's conscious that just like for so many of us, you might get to that point where you think it's just, it can't get any darker. And his intention is to proclaim light and resurrection and life for you who are in darkness. And so he does, we saw this last week, he promises that those who oppress them will be cast down, will be overthrown. But that's only the first half of what he has to say he also intrudes again with what he often does at the start of his letters he reports what he's praying for them and having thanked god for his friends he then explains what he's praying that the lord would do in them and that portion of his prayer report is what we just read in verses 11 and 12. there are really two parts of it the first is the practical stuff when he says look this is this is what i this is what i'm praying that you'd actually do the Bible is wonderfully practical, and it contains all kinds of things, which I think if we give our attention to them, we actually might find, especially for the kind of completer finishers among us, you know, the, the activists, the people who like to have something to get their teeth into, something practical, I think, I hope for all of us, by God's grace, we may have some practical things to go away with today, which we can do. But then there's something else. There is a, a vision of the future, which I think in those dark hours sometimes vanishes from our consciousness, which the Apostle Paul is determined to reinstate the hope of glory. He wants to just flick that light on so that you see again where it is you're going. And so if I may, first let's look at the first half of this prayer where Paul prays for God to be at work in his friends, to transform the way they actually live. We'll spend most of our time thinking about this and just a few minutes at the end reflecting on that final portion. Uh, not because it's less important, but because, well, we're just going to run out of time if I don't do it like that. So look, verse 11, come, come with me. You've got your Bibles, open them up again. To this end, we always pray for you. Can you see? And you know always, I've mentioned this before, that when Paul is praying and reporting what he's praying, he's also highlighting for us what it is that is most significant for them. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfil every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. There is a sense of urgency. The verb to pray is a continuous tense verb. Greek gets complicated at this point, but it's confirmed by the always. We're always praying for you. And what would you pray? What would you pray for people who are in danger of losing hope? People who... They kind of know that they ought to feel more conscious of trusting in Christ, but sometimes the the actual experience of that hope is starting to diminish. What would you pray for them? Perhaps as they're approaching the end of their lives, and it's quite terse, two prayer report elements here, that our God would make you first worthy of his calling, and then second, may fulfil every resolve for good and every work of faith. In other words, in various ways for the living God to be at work in them. Now, uh, the details here or where the, the, the action really is. It's so important. I've always said this here at All Saints and elsewhere. Look at the details. Come with me and let's look at exactly what it is that Paul's praying. Grab your Bibles, look at verse 11. Notice what Paul prays. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Let's think about that. Well, worthy, we, we talked about this last week. There's a way of misunderstanding that. What Paul isn't saying is that uh, the Lord would make you good enough for him. Like, th- that's not what we're talking about here. There's no sense of merit. It's more to do with the Lord would make your lives fit with the, the status that you've already been placed in. You have been ransomed by his grace. Notice the emphasis on God's grace here at the end of verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's by his power. This is not like, well, what God's going to do? He's going to look around and see who's up to the task. And then, like, what I really want is the really nice people, the really good people, the people who've got it all all sorted out, the people who don't really have any sins that need forgiving, because then they're welcome in the kingdom of Christ. No, that wouldn't be right, would it? Can you see? No, no, you've been welcomed into the kingdom of Christ. That's where you are now. And now the issue is, well, are you going to by his grace, be able to live in a way that fits with that. And he's praying that you would. And notice, uh, again, just a detail here, uh, verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. It it is, some translations have here that he would consider you worthy. And of course, the Lord does consider us worthy of the calling that we have. Um, In technical terms, he changes our status. But the Lord isn't praying that the, the Thessalonians would have their status changed from darkness to light. They're already in the light. He's praying for them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. What he's praying here is that he'd actually change the way they live in technical terms and sometimes theologians like to make technical terms. We've been justified. We've been given a new standing in Christ. Now the Lord is working in us to progressively make us more like him. That's what Paul is praying for here, and he prays for it in these distinctive ways. Now, uh, illustration here: like you imagine, and I'll come come back to this illustration in a few minutes' time. You've been enlisted in the military. Some of you are soldiers or airmen. You've worked for the U.S. military. This is not praying that you'd get through the initial uh, tests and physical uh, endurance performance tests, and you get through so that you'll actually end up enlisted. What this is, is now you've been deployed. You've been enlisted, you've received your uniform, you've received all the weapons, you've received all the gear you need, you've received the training that you need, you have everything you need. And now the the question is, are you going to be able to do the job? Are you going to be able to get out into the field and do what you signed up to do? That's what Paul has in mind here, and he prays that they would. And one other detail, look look at verse 11 that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Literally, it doesn't say his calling. Literally, it says the calling. And you can understand why um, the the translators have put his in there. Because it is the calling that comes from God. But see, the problem is, if you remove his and put the, which is what the text actually says, what it highlights is that the Lord isn't here concerned with the itty-bitty details of your life, and then the itty-bitty details of your life, and then the itty-bitty details of your life, and then the itty-bitty details of your life, and all these different things you have to do. What he's actually talking about is the, capital T, calling, capital C. Can you see the difference? It is the mission that we have all received, that God would make you able to take on the challenges associated with, quote, the calling. It it implies that there is some well-understood, big-picture task that we're all involved in. That's what the calling is. And you see why this is significant, right? Because we so often get lost in the details, which is why so many of us showed up this morning preoccupied. And really the remedy is, partly, to step back and see the big picture. What is it that the living God is doing in the world? See, because if we, if we allow our life to be swallowed up by those little details, you see it becomes overwhelming. Just think about your last week. I mean, and, and this is what it was like for those of you who aren't really um, experiencing specific and painful hardships. This is just normal. Think of all the emails to answer and the piles of paper in your intray that never stop growing. Or think of all the diapers to change and meals to cook and shelves to dust and floors to sweep. Or think of all the orders to ship and another day in the warehouse and another truckload of steel needs to go out and another week and another 500 phone calls from impatient customers and another year and another tax return. And you get up tomorrow morning and the cows will need feeding again and you fed them yesterday. It's like, what's wrong with you guys? And it's like, yeah, no, we need feeding again. It's like life... And you end up with this kind of heavy dose of Ecclesiastes despair. You remember Ecclesiastes? Some of us were looking this in um, Wednesday night Bible study. A generation goes, and the generation comes, but the earth remains forever, and the sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises, and the wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north, and around, and around goes the wind, and all the streams run to the sea, and the sea is never full, and all my work keeps increasing, and it's never completed. And verse 8, what has been is what will be, and what will be done is what has been done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is just overwhelming, and there seems no end to it all. And is it not the case that at times you feel like there's no point to it all? And the reason is because we so, get, we so easily get lost in the details. It's not that the details don't matter. It's not that the details don't matter. The Lord, if he knows how many hairs are on the head of each of his people, and if he knows every swallow that falls from the sky, then he, he cares about all the details of his life. But we can only make sense of those details if we see the big picture. We got lost in my calling can you see? And we haven't, we're not placing it in the context of the calling, me, that, that military illustration, we'll go back to that for a second. Um, we've got some soldiers here and men who've served in the military and women who've served in the military, why would you do it? Because you want to be a great engineer, you want to be a great pilot, you want to be a great infantryman, All those people who work in logistics and people who do this that, and the other thing, is, is that why you're there? When you enlist, remember what you said? The opening words of the oath of enlistment in the US military. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. See, that's what you're doing. Can you see? That's the thing that our military men and women swear. And it's having that big picture, which is the only thing which can keep you going through the nitty-gritty and the long nights and the how many hundreds of hours of study you have to do to fly those planes or how many uh, muddy, freezing cold mornings you have during SEAL training or whatever it is that you're doing. It's only the big picture that can ha- help you make sense of the details. And what's the big picture? Well, Paul's coming to that. But I promise you, if you allow yourself to get lost in the details, you will be overwhelmed. So what is, hmm, let me ask you the trick question, what's your calling? And the danger is you say, well I'm a mum, I'm a father, I'm a school teacher, I work in a shop, I'm, uh, I'm an engineer, I'm an accountant, what is your calling? And I want to say yes, but why? Isn't it, what's your calling? What, what does Paul say? This is how men ought to regard us. And he's got a pretty significant special personal calling, hasn't he? Apostle to the Gentiles. Saul of Tarsus, the converted Pharisee. One of the most famous Christians ever to have lived. This is how men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. That's the first thing, can you see? And if we're willing, if we're ready to see that first, we will be able to make sense of everything else. Notice another detail here in verse 11, back to 2 Thessalonians 1. To this end, we always pray to you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and notice, very intriguing what he says, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And isn't it, it's interesting, isn't it, how easily we just, we allow our eyes to to swim over the word. you ever notice that and you're like, Uh, It looks like a prayer that would be about do good things, something. (laughs) Yes, but look, what does it say? That our God would fulfil every resolve. Every resolution, in other words. To fulfil means to bring to completion, to bring to fullness, to bring to the appropriate climax. And what's a resolve? It's like it's a commitment that you made sometime in the past you Thessalonians, sometime in the past you guys made some decisive, well-defined commitments and I pray that you would bring them to completion and every work of, what does it say, faith, well we know faithfulness by his power. In other words, what Paul is praying is specifically this, that you guys, you Thessalonian Christians and you all, preserved for the church, for us all to read, and in God's providence, preserved for this Easter morning, you all have made various commitments at various points of your life, have you not? You've made resolutions, resolves for good. You've made commitments to live your life in a certain way. You've made pledges as members of this church, if you're members of all saints. You've confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. You've confessed that one day every knee will bow before him. You've promised that your knee will bow before him now and i pray i've been praying this week you know what i've been praying for you i've been praying that the lord would simply fulfill in you all the things that you've promised to do in your best moments you know the whole of christian discipleship really could be summed up like this it's it's about striving by god's grace to do what we all know, in our best moments, that we ought to do. Like, if you catch any one of us in our best moments, in our most sane moments, in the moments when we're thinking straight, in the moments when we've got our priorities set, you know, there is, there is not a single sin to which you you would succumb. You see. In, you see it in the regret you experience after that row with your wife or snapping at the kids or after another wasted Saturday morning just kind of lying in bed Instagramming and Facebooking the hours away. or All the things that you look back and you... It's not that... Yeah, some, some of them you're just ashamed of and some of them you just... That's, that's not how I want to be. That's not, how Christ, that's not what Christ made me to spend my life doing. And you know, Paul's prayer is... <laughs> he's recognising that the Lord has placed in your heart resolutions to do what is right. Concrete convictions. You know, don't you? In, in your moments of sanity in amid the madness the kind of young man you want to be, the kind of woman you want to grow into, the kind of parent you want to be, the kind of worker you want to be, you know. (laughs) And And when you come to Pastor Neil, or when you come to Pastor Shaw, or when you come to me, it's not that you've kind of invented some terrible way of doing evil, it's just that you've not fulfilled the resolves for good that you've made. And of course, this strikes us different people in different ways. I'm looking around and seeing all these unfamiliar faces, all these visitors. Let me tell you, it is a tremendous privilege for us to have you here. We're so grateful. Where are you? There we are. There's some over there. We, I'm delighted. And, and the wonderful thing is I don't know anything much about most of you at all, so I can say almost anything I like. And it's, Well, if it's not relevant, I can't really be blamed, can I? Um, I, I wonder, could I ask you just one question? And I think this might be relevant to all of you. you just consider for a moment. So some of you... <laughs> Some of you probably haven't been in a church since this time last year when the same family members invited you last time. Let me ask you this question. Don't put your hand up, don't shout out, just think. Are there any resolutions that you've made in the past that have anything to do with Jesus Christ? Anything at all? Any resolves for good. Because this is what I've been praying for you, without knowing your name or even knowing that you'd be here this week. Maybe there's that church back home and you said, yeah, I'm definitely going to go and check that out, and that's what you that's what said last year. Oops. And somehow you never got around to it. Or there was that book that your Christian relative, that annoying Christian relative, she gave you another book by the, some Christian author or something last Christmas again, and, you, and this time you promised you'd read it, and there it is, kind of buried under a pile of books on the nightstand. Or there was that Bible your grandma left you, which she promised you read. And you never did. Or maybe you haven't got a Bible. Well, actually, <laughs> this is a church. We can probably help with that. And once upon a time, maybe there was, there was a day, four or five or ten or fifteen years ago, when you, you actually got down on your knees and you started to pray. And you thought, oh, man, that felt different. You did that once. And it's now so long ago that you, you feel a little bit embarrassed and you don't really know how and you don't really know what, what you want to do and, and as you think about all those resolves for good in your past uh, you don't even really have a sense of what it is that you're looking for or, and you'd be a bit embarrassed to, to come to a pastor after the service today or to email any of us and say because I, I, um, you wouldn't know what to say but, but what there was, was there was something that you resolved to do, and you've not done it. Something to do with Jesus. Anyway, look, if there's one good thing that comes out today, what, I, what I'd really like is to rock up at work tomorrow morning, and my inbox has got like six, seven, eight, twelve emails in it, and all of them say something like, hey pastor, um, you, you were talking yesterday about uh, something about visitors are all saints. And something that, once I resolve to do something about Jesus, and I, and, and I think you were talking to me, okay, I'm free between um, 1.15 and 5.30 tomorrow. Okay, grab a slot. If I'm overloaded, then Pastor Neal's right here and Pastor Shaw's right there. One of us will be free. Come find us before you go home. Because, have you ever thought, like, you could be an answered prayer? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You could be... Uh, An answered prayer of Paul the Apostle from 2,000 and odd years ago, of me, and of all the other people who have been praying for you, which is why you're here at all. My email address is on the bottom of the order of worship at the back, sj at allsaintskirk.org. And if you all, literally all come, then I might have to pass some of you off to Pastor Neil. Which would be great, by the way, right? (laughs) He's free all day. He's probably not, actually. He's probably completely overloaded, but... We'll find a time. But here's the thing. What what do you not want to do? Let another year go by? See, some of these Thessalonians haven't got another year. They don't know it yet. Because look, all the persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring, some of those persecutions and afflictions might put an end to your life before next Easter. So you might want to think about sorting your priorities out in the meantime, which is what Paul is praying they'd do. That's the first thing. Second, Paul prays something absolutely remarkable in verse 12, and here we return to what I talked about at the beginning, the hope of glory. Paul prays that Jesus would be glorified. Well, no surprise there. That's a kind of good thing, and we'll come to that in a second. But he prays that the Thessalonian Christians would be glorified as well. Look at verse 12. And again, it's, It's just look at the details. Look at what the Bible actually says and it'll blow your mind. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I mean, some of this is fairly familiar, isn't it? So Paul's prayer flowing from his his prayer about the lives of his Christian friends. Like, if, if by God's grace you live in this way, this will have the result that, verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. So the name of Jesus is a way of speaking about his reputation, there's other things as well actually, but so the reputation of Jesus Christ will be glorified in the sense of honoured, uh, exalted. So what actually happens is, as you go away and do verse 11, Jesus is honoured because people maybe without even realising it in some cases, see him in you. So he's glorified in you. His reputation is enhanced because uh, his disciples start to love one another, for example, as in some way like he loved us. So that's familiar and certainly true. It's certainly part of what's in Paul's mind here. Isn't it a wonderful thought that you... you you could do something about the reputation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that intriguing? How quick we are to lament Jesus' low reputation in a nation that was founded in explicit reference to God, his Father, and we lament every single day, don't we? Every single 20 minutes of the news cycle how Jesus is despised in this country well you could do something about the reputation of Jesus by doing verse 11 all those resolves for good I mean, it might not be that you make it onto CNN but you didn't really want to be on CNN did you, you want to, in, your, in your sane moments you want a quiet life yeah but in that tiny way and I think this is part of our problem actually this is part of the problem with how we do public theology we're not content to be a tiny part in a vast machine well you know, you're stuck with it, sorry, you're tiny But you could be a tiny part of that vast machine. And you're, by God's grace, working in you, enhance the reputation of Jesus. And you might never know that it's happened. But there's more than that. Because look, I mean, first, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. Well, if to be glorified means that your reputation is enhanced then Paul is praying here that our reputations would be enhanced which just seems a little implausible on the face of it, doesn't it? So there's clearly something else going on to be glorified in him doesn't mean on the face of it that our reputations get bigged up as I believe the teenage um, vernacular is Am I right about that? No, my, my poor daughters are so embarrassed understandably Um, but actually you you notice um, elsewhere in scripture there there are many references to our being glorified so you've got the same in this letter um, chapter 2 verse 14 to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ glory is something that we obtain not something only that Christ has same thing in Romans 8 we're heirs of God and fellow heirs in Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Because obviously, here yeah, Lent comes before Easter, Advent comes before Christmas, darkness comes before the blazing light of God's vindication. Always suffer with him so that you may be glorified with him. So there is a, there is a deeper and richer meaning to glorified in the Bible, which has to do with you being glorified. And I I got, I confess, I, I had higher hopes for this last few minutes of today's sermon than I feel now able to fulfil. And the pile of books that I don't fully understand on my desk testifies to the, the feebleness of what I'm about to offer you as an explanation of what it means for you to be glorified. But let me have a go. Put most simply, for us to be glorified means for us to share in the glory that Christ has as the risen Messiah. Glory is, in that sense, a reference to Jesus' experience of risen life, resurrected life. And so the promise here, that when it says that you would be glorified and the the verb is implied, you in him, it's that our relationship with Christ will be such that he who was raised bodily would raise us bodily on the last day, and that we would experience at that point the life that he now experiences, is a promise of the general resurrection, in other words, in theological terms. Christ was raised in 30 AD or so, as the first fruits of a renewed creation, which is us, and we, we experience and participate in that now, but not bodily. Your body's gonna die soon, in cosmic terms. We're a drop in a bucket, 70, or by reason of strength, 80. But that's not the end, that's not the goal for human life. The goal for human life is to share in the risen bodily life of Jesus. That's a simple way of putting it. You might ask, why glory? Why is glory the description here that we would be glorified in Christ? Okay, let me have a quick go. Um, The glory that Israel saw in the wilderness was in the cloud that led them, They couldn't normally see the glory in the wilderness, but on one or two occasions, they did. Here's where the threads start to become untangled for me, but let me have a go. That cloud is the cloud that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1, when he saw inside the cloud. What is it he said? Um, Oh man, I I, I need to get this right. Right at the end of Ezekiel chapter 1, what he, and he's got this massive description of what he sees inside the cloud, and it's seraphim and wheels and brightness and flashing, and such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Okay, so he's seeing the not the glory of the Lord, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now that likeness word is the same likeness word as in Genesis 1, which is what you are made to be. He's seeing something about God, which is the thing that, is true about us as we're meant to be as human beings which also fits with the creation narrative because um Ezekiel hears the sound of wings flapping and you know that the the spirit hovers over creation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. So well, goodness gracious, what does all this mean? What it means is um, for us to be created in the image of God in the beginning and recreated in the image of God in Christ means for us to possess glory, God's glory. All of the things that are wonderful and worthy of being displayed about God, but are currently hidden because cloud, have been unveiled in Jesus Christ and will one day be unveiled in you. That's the hope of glory. And see, you go all the way back to where we began, and you can see the problem now, can't you, with being so preoccupied with whatever it was that you came into church with this morning. Because that, that is, is a huge deal. How, is, how are we going to get out of this? How, how am I going to cope with this job for the next 30 years? This relationship, I, I, I knew it was bad, I didn't realise it could go this bad. Um, whatever it is, this illness. What, ha, and the answer is, it, well... I don't know, and, and if that's all you see, if, that, if you just have your eyes on that, I promise you you'll despair, but the Christian hope is the hope of glory. It is a participation in a much larger story where I genuinely, you'll be able to look back at whatever it is that you brought into worship with you this morning and say, with the Apostle Paul, light and momentary afflictions because your hope is fixed on something else best I can do sorry let's pray merciful Father we thank you for the hope of glory we thank you for the promise of sharing in Christ's resurrection life being men and women as we were made to be And indeed, as we have been remade to be in Christ. We pray you would teach us to pursue those perhaps now fading resolutions. That you'd renew your work of faithfulness and those desires for good in us. That we may participate now in glorifying the glorious Lord Jesus, and may share forever in the glory that he now has as the risen King of heaven and earth. And we pray in his name. Amen.